Hello everyone and welcome to the History Film Club, the podcast about period dramas and all the things we love about history on screen. I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and historical consultant to film and television. I'm Alex von Tanzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And today on the History Film Club, we are really thrilled to be talking to a very exciting applicant, Greg Jenner. He is a historian, broadcaster, historical consultant and author. Greg is the host of two BBC podcasts, You're Dead to Me and Homeschool History, and uh, You're Dead to Me can now also be heard on Radio 4. He's the author of Dead Famous, An Unexpected History of Celebrity and A Million Years in a Day. Greg is not only the hardest working man in history, as you can probably tell from all this, he was recording a podcast until midnight last night, but he's also the nicest man in history as well. If you follow him on Twitter, you'll know that Greg is a very charming historian. I'm afraid not all of us historians are quite as charming as Greg. (laughs) Welcome, Greg, to the History Film Club. Well, you know, I saw the I saw the sort of the nice embossed font you had on the the club door. I thought, oh, that looks classy. I want to join that club. So, uh, you know, got to come. Well, on. we missed out, Alex. Right. That we should also describe Greg as the legendary Greg Jenner, as oh, he was recently that. described by the BBC. So, you know, <laughs> welcome, legendary Greg Jenner, yes. the Greg of legend, <laughs> the apocryphal Greg Jenner, who yes. serves purely as a sort of symbolic metaphor for the failure of humanity. Um, yes, it's, His existence it's, is not established. No, I, I, you know, I, I am probably a conflation of various Greg Jenners, uh, all of them <laughs> different people. I don't know. It's very strange when people start describing you that way. But uh, thank you for having me on your podcast and uh, letting me apply for membership to this illustrious club. I'm very well, excited. thank you for applying. Now, obviously, you know, there's a very, very rigorous membership test, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and we take it very seriously and very rigorously. So, we'd like to begin, Greg, though, by talking to you about a subject pretty close to your heart. Now, we talk a lot about historical drama on this show, but actually, your real love is historical comedy. I think. And did you not do this as your master's thesis? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm slightly odd uh, in a lot of ways, but um, as an MA student, I. Um, I was doing medieval studies and everyone else was doing proper MA distinction. You know, they were doing proper MA dissertations about like proper medieval things. And I was much more interested in medievalism, which is how we construct the medieval past through popular culture. Why do we think the medieval world was violent and sort of dark and, and stupid and dirty? And so I did it on movies about King Arthur, which mostly was an excuse to watch Monty Python's Holy Grail. Because, you know, that's the, the delightfully funny comedy, uh, a brilliant film. But what was so interesting about doing my, my MA this station on that was that I then polled medieval historians to find out their attitudes towards movies about their particular area of, of specialism. And I discovered, not unsurprisingly, that historians are very defensive about their own period and much more chill about other people's periods. Um, <laughs> But what was really, really fun and surprising about Holy Grail is that medieval historians love it. They think it's great. They think it's accurate and funny and authentic and clever. And they they find it full of in-jokes that only they get. So uh, although it's a ridiculously silly film about a medieval myth that doesn't, you know, not even a real man, actually... It's sort of the most authentic film there is about like kind of the medieval world because it's full of jokes that historians go, ha, 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 very well, very well done, well done. So um, that was fun to do because that's, that was surprising, actually, that 
um, comedy would be considered to be a work of genuine historical scholarship almost. And uh, and yeah, so I've always been a very big comedy nerd and I work on horrible histories and I work with comedians on my podcasts. And for me, comedy is not the antithesis of drama. Uh, and also what's delightful about comedy is that it allows you to explore a world with joy and with, you know, ways of enjoying the past and it being delightful and funny and surprising. And you can do two things with it. You can either make the the past an alien world of weirdness and stupidness and people wearing funny hats and saying funny words and everything is different and, um, you know, the past is a different country, that kind of thing. Or you do your sitcom and you make the past feel really present and really modern and familiar. And you do something like Plebs, which is a show about you know some bellends who live in rome and they're kind of young guys in their 20s who are just trying to sort of pick up girls and, and be successful at work but it keeps going wrong for them and those sorts of people live now and so you can do either you know with comedy set in the past you can make history feel remote and different and that's where your laughs come from or you can make it feel familiar and the jokes come from the kind of like oh i do that and so it's a really wonderful palette that allows you the opportunity as a creative person or as a joke writer to do a lot of different things, which I think is very, very enjoyable. I think people have sometimes been uncomfortable, haven't they, about the idea that you can laugh at history, that we should have a laugh about it. But it's been so successful, like the Monty Python films and then Horrible Histories. It's like any age group, if you can get a laugh out of somebody, then you're going to spark their interest in the past. And I think that's testament to how successful this has been as a kind of package of delivering yeah, ideas about history on screen. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the thing that's really intriguing to me is when I say to people, oh, you know, history and comedy have worked really, really well. And they go, yeah, Blackadder. And I go, well, Blackadder's not a historical comedy. It's an alternative reality historical comedy. It's set in, an, it's set in a world where Henry VII doesn't win the Battle of Bosworth and where George III, uh, George IV, uh, rather, you know, uh, doesn't end up as king, where Elizabeth I is murdered, where, you know, it's, it's an alternate reality sitcom set in a kind of parallel universe. And so what's interesting about comedy is that we can sometimes forget what it's doing and just enjoy it and even even take it more seriously than it takes itself seriously you know blackadder is is a hyperbole show about you know what if uh the, the kind of classic tudor history hadn't happened and from that you then can extrapolate other kinds of alternative jokes the only series that does work in a kind of real historical world is is the fourth series the 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 trenches the first world war that one feels grounded in in the actual history but the other series are very playful and very naughty in just completely rewriting what they want to do with history and yet we consider it to be the definitive historical sitcom it's funny isn't it but i do think that that like growing up with blackadder certainly was part of sparking my love of history and i'm sure now generations of children are growing up with horrible histories in a very similar place which is really inspiring them and what kind of you know i mean that must have been a huge challenge to start working on that show because you know you were consultant on that from from very early on from the beginning perhaps even mm -hmm. yeah and yeah, from day yeah one. and I mean you have to kind of know about all history don't you I mean it <laughs> ranges so far and wide so what was the kind of process of working on that like it's extremely hard work I mean it's joyful it's wonderful I you know I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity but oh my god it was so terrifying 
uh, I was 25 and I was the only historian on the show. So it was just me. And um, we started out on series one by just reading Terry Deary's books and I would fact check them to make sure that everything was still accurate and unfortunately it wasn't so you have to then go all right okay so correct that and update that and bring that in line and then of course adding extra information because the writers would suddenly go well what about this and you go i don't know i better look it up and so we were doing essentially the history of um the world well not so much the whole world but you know certainly you were going back to the stone age and you're doing the egyptians and the romans and the greeks and the vikings and the medieval world and the tudors and world war ii and so the georgians it's it's a huge amount of history and so i would just spend every single day reading so i read about 250 books a year um spoke to every historian i knew at the time uh, which wasn't so many back then now i know a lot more uh and just constantly on the hunt for funny surprising history like never ever ending and so i'd be doing 80 hour weeks and i did that for five years uh, and then we stopped making the show. I took a year off, wrote a book, and then the show came back. And series six, um, I ended up with a researcher, which helped me. Um, and then by series seven, I had two researchers and then three. And now on series nine, uh, a large team of researchers, uh, several of whom have PhDs <laughs> or are doing PhDs. Um, we are the most qualified research team I think you'll probably find in TV anywhere. There's a lot more expertise on horrible histories than there is on a historical documentary. If you're making a documentary about, you know, Henry VIII or whatever, you are not going to have nearly as many historians working on that as work on horrible histories. So I think people assume horrible histories is a bit silly, a bit of fun, but, you know, a bit lightweight. Actually, we take our history <laughs> research really seriously, you know, because laughing the best at the past... research show on TV. <laughs> yeah, well, because you have to be, because it's kids. Yeah. You've got to make the responsibilities there. So, um, yeah, we take it really seriously. It's chosen a fantastic success of the show. Um, and... You know, it's a bit in terms of historical comedy more generally, you know, do you have any kind of faves? Obviously, you know, the Holy Grail is clearly up there. Um, yeah. But, you know, what really kind of what have you really enjoyed in terms of film or TV? There are so many to enjoy. I think I mean, I am very much a Python head and and Holy Grail for me is the the film that gives me the most joy. I think Life of Brian is probably a better film. Uh, in terms of, you know, the quality of the filmmaking and what they're trying to do. Um, and what's interesting about both of those films is that they you show them to scholars, you show them to either a classicist or uh, someone who works on late antiquity or works on uh, kind of biblical studies, and they'll say to you that Life of Brian is unerringly authentic. It really does tap into an awful lot of what was going on in the world at the time. And so what's so interesting about Python is that they were a team made up of people who enjoyed history, you know, the history graduates in that team who really loved the nitty gritty of historical scholarship. And so Holy Grail for me, there are jokes in there, as I said before, that really, really work for medievalists. You know, the fact that Lancelot is a psychopath who has an <laughs> idiom and, and so he, you know, constantly charges into castles to try and rescue damsels and maidens or whatever and, um, and in the process slaughters everyone that's that's in the medieval poetry i mean that's pretty accurate right that's i mean that's that's the kind of true uh lancelot is that when you read mort d'arthur or whatever like the violence is insane in those kind of medieval poems there are limbs being smashed off and heads being lopped off and people stabbed and friends kill each other by accident it's really really violent and so python i think we're doing jokes about sam peckinpah movies being really really violent but actually it's really good and the fact that Galahad the pure is actually not so pure that's really funny as well 
and then you've got that fantastic joke about you know the French already having a Grail. We've already got, we've already got one, um, <laughs> and that's a joke about the fact that the Holy Grail is invented by a French poet. You know, the idea of the Grail is not part of the English or Welsh uh, Arthurian legacy. That is a twelfth and thirteenth century French invention and so the joke that king arthur turns up and he wants a holy grail and the frenchman at the castle says we've already got one i'll check but i think we've already, you know that's a gag about medieval literary cycles and how stories get recycled and new things get added to them that's a joke for medievalists so what i love about holy grail is that it's ridiculously silly and you have you know the knights who say nee you want a shrubbery which is just pure python idiocy but then you also have jokes about paleography and the spelling of medieval castles and you know the castle of arg the castle of camarg and there's jokes about you know medieval um illuminated manuscripts and what they look like that's terry gilliam obviously there's a really rich text that goes on in that film that is extrapolating out these jokes that history students would do you know the kind of thing you do gags about when you're a kind of history student doing your little review show or whatever it is at university that's the kind of thing i love about it is that there's clearly a, a deep love of the medieval past in that film and yet at the same time it's also really really silly and it's great to talk about the historical content because we are meant to be all about history and film here in our podcast but when i was looking at those films recently i went down a complete rabbit hole about the production and the development of the films because it's just, they did it on absolutely no money at all. And I think it was Monty Python, Life of Brian, that um, the funding was pulled at the last minute. And so one of the Beatles then stepped in and gave them some cash to make it on a shoestring. And then for Holy Grail, it was just like a group of rock stars who pitched into their pockets and like gave 10 grand each. And they didn't have enough money for horses. So that's why they're doing like the clip-clop sounds because... um you know, they just totally ran out of any kind of funding. Yeah. So the horses are hilarious because they're not there. They didn't, couldn't afford them. Yeah, I mean, the coconut jokes is, is, a, is a radio joke because you use coconuts on the radio. I, I think, I mean, if you, if you look at Life of Brian, they've got big extra scenes. They've got, they're shot, they're shot in North Africa. It's really beautiful. You've got Roman Colosseum type sort of arena elements. You've got lots of lovely costumes and uniforms. There's big exterior shots. It looks classy. You know, it's it's got a kind of oomph behind it. Whereas... Holy Grail, you know, they're doing jokes about a Camelot, it's only a model, because they can only afford a cardboard cutter. <laughs> yeah. so, they're kind of wearing their sort of low-budget thing on the sleeve and doing jokes about it. But... but they also film photos of locations instead of going to the locations. And, you know, they put a few cam like light, light candles around to change the lighting around their postcard that they've got of this castle that they're just, you know, filming. But I love all of that because it just shows that you can make these incredible history films in your back bedroom with, <laughs> with just like your picture book and yeah. um and I just it's so creative and inspiring I just loved all of that I went I totally went down a rabbit hole about how they made the films but it's so interesting because you know Holy Grail as you said was really cheap and it was sort of funded by their mates and but actually what's lovely about it is it's kind of it feels sort of authentically dark and grimy and gritty and misty you know which is actually them just trying to sort of cut the budget i think by filling the <laughs> shot with like mist so you don't see people in the background holding a boom mic but it does give it a sort of authenticity but it's really interesting how when hollywood makes arthurian movies they throw so much money at them and they always end up looking a bit crap there are no good <laughs> king arthur movies from the past 20 years uh, camelot looked good 
but Camelot's very over the top. I mean, it looks, yeah. it's very camp, uh, but it's it's a musical. It's, you know, it's it, Excalibur yeah. looks good. It's, it's sort of beautiful. You know, the colours on that are saturated. It's really sort of mystical and, and whatever. But you look at like kind of the, the Antoine Fuqua King Arthur movie with Kieran Knightley and Clive Owen. You know, it's men to look gritty and dark, but it's just kind of boring and flat. And then Hollywood keeps remaking King Arthur movies and Robin Hood movies, and they're meant to be fun, but they're not. They're really dull. They're just a bit like, meh, don't really care. There's a sort of, I don't know, there's a kind of thing where Hollywood sometimes spends so much money on what they think is the authentic medieval world, and it just ends up looking really modern and not right. And uh, and it's a difficult thing to pull off. So. Funny enough, Monty Python, I think, when you stick Life of Brian on or even Holy Grail, they feel to me more classy than something that cost $80 million. I think that's also very much to do with your point about comedy in many ways in that, you know, they keep trying to make the sort of Dark Knight version of these histories, you know, the sort Mm. of gritty Robin Hood or King Arthur. And the thing is, that's not what these things were, you know? I mean, these stories were crazy and outlandish and enjoyable and colourful and fun. And I think if you kind of tried to suck all the fun out of those and make them gritty and edgy and dark, I'm not quite sure who the audience is for that. And that seems to be proved over and over again by Hollywood, mm. you know, that maybe they should actually go back to having some fun with these stories and uh, and then we'd all want to see them again. Well, there's a new Lady of the Lake uh, TV show coming out soon, I think, which, you know, is, is looking to kind of take the, the Arthurian legend and, and, and switch it up and make it about a uh, female protagonist. But yeah, there is a kind of strange Hollywood thing of like, well, we, the last one didn't work and the one before didn't work, but this one will work. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> st- stop trying. You know, you're not getting it right. So, but I, I'm not, I'm not at all anti these films about the past you know people often ask me oh do you get really grumpy about historical inaccuracies and it's like no no absolutely you make your movies about the past but i think if you make them drab and dry and sort of a bit dull then people aren't going to enjoy them because sometimes the reason we go to movies is to be taken away from our lives and captivated by something different and exciting and and if you make your hollywood movie feel a bit I don't know, a bit like the news, then it's it's not going to be as enjoyable. Eating your vegetables. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think there is a kind of trend towards fun now, isn't there? I mean, The Favourite doing so well, I think, has been mm-hmm. a big boon for historical comedy. Of course, off the back of that, The Great has just, got, has just started up. I've only seen the first episode so far. Yeah. But, you know, that's a much more anarchic, fun treatment of history and, and unashamedly modern contemporary but you know it's been a really big hit yeah and i mean obviously hannah you worked on the favorite so you, you've got the inside goss but you know that's a film where it's dealing with a period of history that people don't know much about and and so it was introducing a character as well it wasn't just sort of a, an old rehash of a familiar story it was saying well queen anne is the forgotten monarch so uh it's interesting that that was so successful well i saw i mean i always unsure if we should describe it as a comedy but it was interesting when it came out that it became branded by journalists immediately as a comedy because there are some moments where you sort of laugh a bit uncomfortably in it. So therefore, if we're laughing, it's somehow funny. But I find it quite dark and bleak, actually, The Favourite as a film. I'm not, you know, it's it sits in a different kind of category, really. It really pulls your emotions in a way that, I don't know, the others, you know, singing along to Life of Brian or always look on the bright side of life is not quite the same as weeping. It's, <laughs> no. you know... You kind of like as Queen Anne pets her baby rabbits, and I don't know. It's sort of it's how we categorise these things actually. That a lot of mm. these history films don't fit into one thing or another. It's neither comedy nor 
nor romance, nor, you know, they just fit in their own sort of genres, I think. One of the things I find really frustrating is when people say historical movies are a genre. It's like, well, they're, no, no, they're not a genre. They're just set in the past, but they have their own genres within that. You've got your cop shows and your, you know, you've got your romances and your comedies and you've got your war movies and your spy espionage dramas and your all the sort of standard tropes, but you set it in the past. But as soon as we put someone in a wig and a, and a fancy frock, we will kind of go, ah, costume drama. Excellent. I know what this is. And that is, I think, I don't know what that has. I don't know what causes that. I don't know if that's sort of too much Jane Austen on a sort of Saturday night or Sunday night on the BBC. <laughs> I don't know if we've just fallen into a trap of of seeing the past as one thing, but I, I really noticed that, that people yeah. assume the past must be presented in one way. And these films are all really different. People always say, oh, I hate period dramas. I never watch period dramas. And you even get filmmakers <laughs> saying, oh, I hadn't really thought about making a period drama until I made my amazing, you know, hits. But actually... <laughs> What, all period dramas ever? Like, seriously, yeah. like The Leopard, you don't love that. Like, you don't love, you know, anything at all. Anything set in the past is just enough to me. These kind of blanket categorizations where if we go into the past, it's somehow, you know, bad. And then they're like, oh, apart from horrible histories, because that was really fun and I laughed at that as a kid. It's this sort of juxtaposition. It just becomes meaningless, I think. But Yeah, and you look at something like Gladiator, which was an enormous hit 20 years ago, and that rekindled the kind of the big Hollywood blockbuster, Sword and Sandals, everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. We used to make these films and we'd stop doing them. Um, and that film, I think, at the time was super important in re-inspiring people to uh, go and study classics and, and ancient history and learn Latin. And um, and you can see the gladiator effect. You can see a massive spike in the number of students going off to university to go and learn about the Roman world. And I think you saw the same with Braveheart in terms of Scottish independence. I think there was a surge in, in people in Scotland feeling proud and um, interested in their history again after that film. So these films also sometimes have knock-on effects, which can be really interesting as well. It's more than just period drama is one thing. They can often be uh, really resonant in how we consider ourselves now and you know what we think is important now and who we want to be as a society today. It's a crucial point, isn't it, that historical drama or, or comedy is always really about the present. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, rooted in our concerns. That's why we're telling the story. And one of the key questions, I mean, you'll both know this, but any time that you go and pitch a historical drama, the first question you'll be asked by any commissioner is, why now? Why do we care? Yeah. Why is it relatable? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not making documentaries. This is not eating your vegetables. It's not for an educational purpose. It's what do we look for? And we're looking for a mirror always. Now, with all our applicants to join the History Film Club, we do ask you uh, to nominate a film or TV production that you particularly love to add to the club library. Um, and I was wondering what you would like to add. Uh, OK, so in terms of my favourite uh, production, uh, I mean, there are loads to choose from, of course. There are, I'm a medievalist by training, so, you know, Knight's Tale is, is wonderful. Mm. Um, obviously, I'm a huge Python fan. Um, I think I'm probably going to have to go with... Well, I mean, actually, I'm torn here. I'm really torn. What do I choose? Do I choose the quality or do I choose the thing that makes me happiest? Uh, mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with, I think, Blackadder because of the quality of the writing and the quality of performances and the impact it's had on me and on my fellow writers, the people I work with. It's just, it's so beautifully done that you can't deny the quality of it, even though, as I said before, it's not strictly speaking a historical comedy. It's an alternate reality comedy. But Blackadder is so funny, so clever, so nuanced in its attitude to the past. It, it, finds, it, it finds the jokes 
in two different styles uh, in terms of the language. It's very the, the kind of the linguistics of it are really interesting because some of the jokes come from people like Percy being really sort of historical and over the top, and his language is very florid. And yet Edmund Blackadder's language is very modern and very short and sharp and punchy. So you've got your jokes about you know the kind of old crone going that it be yes it is you know you get your jokes about the past sounding different to now so it it has its cake and it eats it it has both characters sounding very oldy worldy and also characters sounding very modern and it does that simultaneously which is not what you're meant to do you're meant to choose a style and stick to it but blackadder has fun by going no no it's funny when this character does this and it's funny when this character does something else so it's really interesting to see how series one doesn't really work and how series two was changed to become a studio sitcom. Very, very small sets, um, incredibly sort of tight and focused writing where you just get really funny people to say really funny words. Um, so as we said before, you know, with Hollywood spending too much money on big, lavish things, actually the comedy is best served by your quality being about the script and the performances and the sets are you know just a few flats some nice costumes and that's it so Blackadder for me stands the test of time it's still incredibly funny now it's a brilliant show what's your favorite episode (sighs) probably oh probably Samuel Johnson and the dictionary that's a really good one it's probably between that and big gold boobs for me yeah I mean the purists are so great I know I mean the but, you know, I, I made a radio documentary um, for Radio 4 Extra about historical comedy and how it works. And it was a three hour thing. and It was really fun. And I got to interview Stephen Fry about Blackadder. Oh, and we had such a lovely chat about it. Oh, wow. And and he sort of said to me, look, I, you know, I know that actually there's lots of historical mistakes in this. We've got characters who were alive at the same time who weren't alive at the same time at all. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter, though. It just doesn't matter. It's just fun to have your kind of big names from history all in the same room together. So... Blackadder is joyful because it knows what it wants to do and it's it's sort of having fun but you can see that there is some learned knowledge in there as well and by series four you can see that they're much more forensic they've placed their story in a moment in time in a trench in a place and they're not doing the big broad gags anymore where previously you've got poets who don't coexist in the same room by series four they're going no no this is happening very specifically in the first world war and so that, I think, was... I mean, I asked Stephen about it, and he said that, yeah, to a certain extent, it was the fact that it's closer in time, so you have more responsibility for accuracy, but also they felt a real burden to make sure that they were not laughing at the sort of the tragedy of the trenches. So I think that's the other thing we find on Horrible Histories, is that um, the 20th century feels more sensitive and more painful when you do those sorts of stories, and so you have to be different in your type of comedy you're doing. I think we've got space in our club library for all of the Blackadder series. Yeah. And I think the characters, they just really get under your skin. Because um, even though I'm a historian of the 18th century, 18th century Britain, but in my head, Prince Regent is still Hugh Laurie. <laughs> like whenever I think about that like, <laughs> time, it is kind of Blackadder and I just can't escape it. You know, and I try, I'm like, get out of my head. So, like, you know, I've got to try and think about this in a different way. But no, no, they still keep creeping back. And it is Hugh Laurie as... Prince Regent just again and again so um okay so 
so Black Adder is going to go into our library and we'll definitely have a screening of some of those fabulous episodes at some point at History Film Club. Um, but we also ask all our applicants, Greg, to nominate something that we should ban, something that you really don't want to see in our club headquarters at all, either a production or some pet hate. Um, what would that be for you? Well, I am of the school of thought that historical movies and comedies and and shows do not need to be accurate. That's not the thing that they're there for. They are a form of entertainment. Documentary should be accurate, but not drama. Drama's there to entertain us. My pet hate is when TV reviewers and journalists um, basically write these sort of articles kind of going, well, this was wrong, and this was wrong, and this was wrong, and uh, BBC <laughs> throwing £10 million pounds at the thing, and that look, wrong kind of hat. The reason I hate those articles is that they're, they're snobby, and I think that's slightly missing the point. And they misunderstand the fact that making drama is incredibly difficult and very expensive. And you can never film in the, in the castle you want to film in and all that kind of stuff. The other thing to say is, without fail, at least half of those criticisms are wrong. It's remarkable the number of times that TV journalists, are, who are not a specialist and they're not historians, think that they know what the past looked like and smelled like and sounded like. And they then write their reviews saying well they've got this wrong and they they're not actually accurate they they'll say things like this dress is wrong and you go no it's not wrong that's a perfectly accurate dress i remember the white queen um on the bbc a few years ago got such a kicking from the telegraph and i use it in my when i lecture on history and, and tv because half of the complaints were wrong and it's the same with people complaining about medieval people having nice teeth you know, why, why aren't their teeth all rotten and gnarly? It's like, well, medieval people's teeth weren't rotten and gnarly. They were actually relatively healthy. They didn't have orthodontics, but they didn't have sugar in their diets. That's, you know, that comes in later on. So uh, Richard III's teeth were pretty good. Um, and, you know, why do they look clean? Well, people washed. People washed in the medieval past. They had bathhouses. <laughs> they had soap. They, you know, they weren't walk, walking around covered in goat poo. So a lot of the time people complain about things that they think that they're experts in and they're wrong. And that I find frustrating because it's a form of snobbery that assumes that the show hasn't done its its work and hasn't made the choices it's made. You know, like historians do advise on these dramas sometimes. And yes, yeah, sometimes shows get stuff wrong because of ignorance and sometimes they choose to get stuff wrong. But it's a choice. You know, the filmmakers have chosen to do that. And quite a lot of the time the kind of petty sniping that you see on twitter is unfounded and so it's like well you're not helping things here because actually it doesn't matter because the past is you know we're using it for entertainment and of course it didn't look like that because they weren't speaking english you know do you want a drama in middle english do you want chaucerian dialect do you want to hear this in aramaic no you don't you want to hear it in english so of course it's not accurate and that bloke used to be in eastenders anyway so i don't even know why you're complaining but <laughs> I think there is a sort of school of journalism which likes to nitpick as a way of getting headlines, as a way of getting clicks through to the website. And it just is not very kind or compassionate or understanding of what it is that we do when we make something for TV. So that's my rant over. Sorry. Well... <laughs> As somebody who spent eight years writing a nitpicking column about historical <laughs> drama and everything it got wrong. Um, the funny thing is, though, mm. that during the process of writing Real History, I did start out quite nitpicky about small mm. things. And as I kept going, actually, I came more and more around to your point of view, Greg. I really did begin to know more about the industry, about why decisions are made and also see that, yes, a lot of the criticism 
um, that was coming up in of these shows was wrong, was actually just, you know, sometimes a matter of opinion, sometimes not a matter of opinion, sometimes just a fact that they simply had their facts wrong. So, you know, and, and I think that's often there are unexpected things. I mean, one of the big ones is in Gallipoli, which loads of people, yeah. historians and so on, have, have got very cross with the um, commanding officer being British. And what they don't realise is he's not British. He's got a very posh Australian accent, which, of yeah. course, would have been very similar to British accent, actually wearing an Australian uniform. So if you look closely, they have got it right, no question. But, of course, offence is often taken before people really bother finding out the facts. So, and same you know, with while, while I'm admitting my guilt... <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I think uh, that gets Greg into the club anyway, because that is my Woo! pet hate too. I just can't stand those articles. And actually, we're often swapping them, aren't we, Greg, where someone's done like the top 10 things that something got someone got wrong in a film. Uh, but it's also just we, we think the past has a certain look to it and a certain feel because we have, we have received knowledge of what the past looks like. And that received knowledge is often based on... TV shows and films we've already seen when we were younger. So it's really hard to update people's knowledge because they reject it because they go, no, 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 I know what the Roman world looks like. I saw it in Gladiator. And you go, no, 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 but there's there's new knowledge, there's new scholarship. So I met a medieval, um, a medieval, medieval drama 10 years ago probably and we had someone using spectacles because spectacles existed in the 13th century. But we got letters from people going, oh, I can't believe we had spectacles in your drama. These are medieval people. And you're like, yeah, they had spectacles. They had, they had the ability to do that because people in the past were clever and the medieval world was not full of idiots. But, Covered in guns. And it's the same. Yeah. If you, you know, if, and it's the same. You know, we, I did a drama where in the 18th century we had lots of swearing, including the use of the F word. And people were like, well, that's not authentic. It's like, it is authentic. One of the best swear words of the 18th century was fuckster. You fuckster. And it's like, that's a swear word that you get a lot in 18th century vernacular slang, but people don't want to hear it because they don't think it belongs in that century. I actually think so we have that this back, knowledge. It's pretty great, isn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> very expressive. I'm going to use it in all my lectures and just, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm going to deliver all my lectures in authentic 18th century language. Amazing. <laughs> you fucksters. You can address your students. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Greg, yes, you are. We welcome you into the club. (laughs) 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 Well, Greg, we're going to welcome you into the History Film Club with open arms. Congratulations. We're accepting your membership. Um, Now, we normally get somebody, a a new applicant, a drink from the bar, but you're not a drinker, are you? So, what can we get you? Mine's a lemonade. Oh, a lemonade. (laughs) Put a little brolly in it. And thank you ever so much for being with us. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We've been the History Film Club. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex Montonsman, Hannah Gregg and Greg Jenner. It was produced by Nat Tapley for Glooming Productions. <laughs>